This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. We've talked about air quality, air pollution. Some of it is about our reaction to it. Um, I don't know. I don't get a feel for it. I hear I hear it'll be worse today and worse tomorrow than it was yesterday and the day before. I'm going to, again, push my chips into the middle of the table. I thought Tuesday was way worse than Wednesday. I, that's all I heard from people who work outside. That's all I heard from people on my street. I did hear from people who are near water. Now, our community is near water, uh, near Lake Ontario in uh, in Durham region. But I, if you are that person, I'm telling you, I was near water on Tuesday and it smelled like a campfire the entire day. And nobody had that particular campfire. Um, so I'm really curious to judge reaction. And I don't disagree with the theory that some have pushed out there that a lot of what's happened the last three years plus is affecting people's perspectives on the last two or three days. I like to keep things on an even keel. I like to keep things in perspective. Um, And if I found myself at some point, maybe 14, 15 months into the pandemic, I'll take it. I'll take it. And I've told you before about my stories. I was thrilled to... To get vaccinated, I remember that feeling of empowerment, thinking we'll be able to do this and do that. And and some of the people that theorized, no, you won't. You'll have to get another and they'll still make you keep the mask on and all that stuff. I heard all those arguments and I will admit to some cynicism, some skepticism. And a lot of that turned out to be reasonably accurate. I don't know where today is going to go, but unprecedented, unprecedented is a fair way to describe what's going on right now. Not just the actual wildfire haze, the smoky smell. I mean, if unprecedented means I've never experienced anything like it, well, Tuesday in the afternoon, let me raise my hand for unprecedented. Was it unprecedented for you? You can text me at 416-870-6400. Did it feel unprecedented? Think about what you've been through before living in the GTA. I think it's an unprecedented event. And... I know that people are linking there's a wildfire haze it's gone down and air quality is not what it's supposed to be yesterday. And certainly on Tuesday, um, there's a standard that I think any um, environmental organization would say, well, this is safe for breathing and this is safe for activity and this is safe for this and that. And we're not at that safe level. I think we'd agree there. But there's two questions I have. How close are we to it? And should you be preventing People who are in that zone where they're sure that they're safe from doing what they want to do. And are you then sort of, you know, creating a self-fulfilling prophecy where we're just turning the ball over to the anxious and the concerned and those that are actually affected and they get to call all the shots. Does that sound familiar? I Does it? So I don't know the answer. But I don't know that I want, if my kids were in elementary school today, I'd want them outside. I'd want them to have the option to go outside. And if they don't like the air, if they get tired, I'd have them go inside. What are we talking about? If it's not safe for kids to be outside, then they shouldn't be at school. They have to walk to school. They get out of the car, walk from the parking lot. I know how tired recess can, uh, can get. I remember some recesses really well. You get beat up at recesses sometimes too. And these things used to happen. And then Now and then you'd, you'd uh, get your, uh, your sweet revenge. This smoke that's burning in Quebec, um, there's no immediate respite in sight. Nobody thinks that. Nobody thinks that. 
But if you saw the images in New York yesterday, of course, to me, that's unprecedented. We had Hansu Chong on uh, yesterday's show. He's an environmental um, you know, activist. He's done the research. You, you and I, or he and I, or he and you might not agree on everything to do with climate, everything to do with response to it, everything to do with concern levels. But I think he agrees that this is an unusual situation that isn't just about, well, there's forest fires every year. I mean, you don't think that, do you? Here's what he said on the show. I understand why a lot of people de- deny this. The implications are big. The implications seem insurmountable. It seems like such a hard problem to solve. And it's easy to say, oh, it's because of a couple of people, you know, I've been seeing some bots online say, oh, this is because a couple of people, uh, a couple of arsonists um, lit, a, lit a bunch of fires. Well, arsonists can't dry out the forest like we've had, like, like, like the drought we've been having for the past several months. Arsonists can't do that. Um, but what can do that is the massive amount of greenhouse gas emissions that we've been emitting in the atmosphere for over 150 years. Or it's just dry. So uh, you can ask why this year, not the previous 149, but that's unprecedented things. Don't worry about whether there was precedent before. They don't. 9.4 million acres of Canada scorched. Scorched. That's no small amount. 120,000 Canadians aren't in their homes right now because they've been forced out of them. So, again, this is unprecedented. I think there's an element of overreacting. I do. But that's where we got to balance. That's what we have to balance. I mentioned the Toronto Zoo is closing at 3 o'clock today. Why is it okay at 2.55 and not 3.05? And I see this as well, is that PETA... Uh, your uh, world famous uh, people for the ethical treatment of animals. They don't want the Belmont stakes to happen, which happens just outside of New York City. It's the third um, third uh, jewel in the triple crown, like uh, for uh, horse racing. And I get it. People like horses. I love horses. I love I, horses. Because horses. everybody does. Uh, let's bring in Shiva Siddiqui right now, who loves, I don't know if she loves horses as much as that guy did or the other guy next to him. But either way, um, I mentioned the zoo's closing at three o'clock today. PETA says don't run the Belmont stakes. People will be outside. These 18 horses will be running. I don't know. I, how was yesterday for you when you left the show? How was yesterday for you in, in the afternoon and evening? Yesterday was fine for me. I had no issues at all. Mm-hmm. Um and now, I mean, the day before, I had a spring fair and after school with my youngest child and the whole family went. You could feel it. It was hazy. Yep. It was in your mouth. It was smoke. It was just an awful feeling. I came home. My ho- my hair smelled like I'd been in like a nightclub from the 90s. It was just covered in smoke. Uh, but then last night, I had another spring fair, and it was fine. The air quality, I mean, I'm not an expert, but it wasn't the, like the day before. And people were saying yesterday was supposed to be the worst day. Uh, it was absolutely fine. The fair was packed, unlike the day before. It was packed. I was on the water last night, dragon boating on Lake Ontario. Yeah. It was fine. It was fine. Is that not, even I'll see- ask, how stre- is that strenuous like a run? It is work. It's I've, I've seen people dragon boat. Um, oh, it is. It, it is yes, work, exactly. It is a, it's a full workout. It's a workout. Yes. So it's not just a casual stroll through the park. It's not a walk. So no, you but our canoe club... There was a disclaimer. Our canoe club, like our coach did say, if anybody's, you know, we've had to cancel one one ride today already, which I was surprised to hear. Uh, and she said, if anybody's feeling, you know, if they're having trouble breathing, if there are any issues, tell me right away and we're going to stop. It was fine. It was great. Like if, if you drop me in 
to the country yesterday. If you drive me into Toronto yesterday morning and doing the show, I I sat and had lunch with a friend outside. I was outside a good chunk of the day, but I didn't. And I went to the gym and I ran inside. So that's a distinction. I did work out, but it was indoor. I'm telling you, Sheba, paying no attention to the news, paying no attention to other people's conversations or asking how our air quality was, because there were about several of those going around on, on text among all of us, I'm sure. I wouldn't have known the day was any different than any June 7th. I'm being yes. completely honest, but I'm not I'm not 80 and I'm not I don't have a five year old with asthma. I understand it's different for some people, but it sure is. I wouldn't have noticed anything. And that's just me saying that. No, I wouldn't have either. And in terms okay. of the kids and the recesses being canceled or being brought indoors, uh, I don't think schools need to be canceled. OK, that's I think that's a little extreme, but um I think it's a frenzy that's happening. Like I'm part of a lot of mom groups and that was the conversation yesterday. And I was internally rolling my eyes as I was reading I wondered. this because yeah. a lot of people were just, uh, did you send your kids to school? Are you sending your kids to school tomorrow? And contact your school, contact the teacher. Are they going to be outdoors today? We have to ensure that they're inside. And I'm thinking, just let my kid play. Yeah. It's fine. Yeah. Just let my kid go outside and play. We'll talk so about- there's a lot of pressure from the parents. That's the issue. I, I, I know. Um, but then it becomes, as we call it, that domino effect. Well, this school board's doing it. Why aren't you? Um, yes. And there's a lot of that uh, to a great extent. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Um, Pierre Pauly ever had this to say about the interest rate increase yesterday. Some people are forecasting some doom. I know there's some politics involved for sure with economic policy. Policy uh, with the Bank of Canada and the federal government. I got that. Let's hear what Pierre Polyevre had to say yesterday. This is on the verge of becoming a crisis. And that is an overused term. But I want you to consider this. The people who took out million-dollar mortgages in 2021 and 2022 will be up for renewal after their five years in 2026 and 2027. As these hundreds of billions of dollars of debt collide with the massive increases in interest rates there will be a severe default crisis. That is not according to me. That is according to last week's report from the IMF, which says that Canada is the single most at-risk country for mortgage defaults of any country in the G7. That was yesterday, of course, the interest rate up to 4.75%. There have been a ton of increases. We were hoping for a steady summer and maybe even decreases in the fall. That's not where we are right now. Uh, let's get it from uh, John Pasalis, who's president and rec- uh, broker of record at Realosophy RE. You can find him at realosophy.com. I always love having you on. I think you shoot really straight on this stuff. What was your reaction to the rate hike yesterday? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think it caught most people off guard Uh and it's going to put a lot of pressure on the housing market. It's, it's driving up fixed rates uh, on mortgages uh, and, and it's going to lot, put probably a lot more pressure on the rental market, uh, you know, as, as we see some buyers kind of hit pause in, on their home search and kind of move to the rental market, driving up demand there. And, and when we look at, I mean, Toronto isn't unique, obviously, because we've seen, John, as you've noted so many times, um, the pandemic changed real estate. People moved away from city cores. They wanted space. They could work remotely. But it sure drove prices up all over southern Ontario. There's probably not much that changes that based on a quarter percent increase, a quarter point increase yesterday. Yeah, I mean, definitely the quarter point increase uh, on its own is not going to have a huge impact. But, you know, the quarter point increase where it's having the impact is 
Uh, it's driving up fixed rates, which is what most borrowers are getting today, and that's going to make it harder to get a mortgage. But more importantly, it's changing the sentiment in the market. You know, at the start of this year, when buyers rushed back into the market, and, and you know, since then we've seen bidding wars and, and an acceleration in home prices, this was partly driven by the expectation that the bank had reached its limit and, you know, rate cuts will be coming sooner rather than later. Um, and yesterday's change kind of reversed that sentiment and said, wait a second, rates are going to stay high for a lot longer than people are thinking. I know you tweeted yesterday, nobody is getting a variable rate. Do you know, are banks all providing fixed rates? If, it, you know, those of us who sat down, bought a house, it felt like we had that option when we renew, we have an option. First time home buyers, are they either getting pushed into or convinced to go fixed instead of variable? How does it work? Yeah, right now. So no one's getting pushed into anything. But the, when you look at the math, I mean, variable rate mortgages uh, are significantly higher than fixed rate mortgages, you know, which, which is a very odd dynamic. Usually they're lower. Um, and, you know, the sweet spot that most buyers are going with is probably around two to three years because that is well below uh, the interest rate on a variable um, you know, and most buyers don't want to, even like at a slightly low rate in a five-year term, they don't want to lock in for five years, right? So most buyers these days are going for a two or three-year fixed rate mortgage. John Pasalis is our guest on uh, 640 Toronto and Toronto Today. The the link between interest rate hikes and uh, and, and stamping out inflation, um, where do you stand on it in general? Do you look and go, it's so unique because of how much money flooded the market, how many people decided to spend money on home improvements, how little travel we did, how little um, excessive spending we did on big vacations or big splash shots. How do you do you view it and go, there isn't always the link we think there's going to be? Yeah, that's 100% correct. I mean, and, and there is probably the link in consumer spending. You know, we're going to see that people spending less. But with respect to housing, uh, we're kind of seeing the opposite effect. As the Bank of Canada has raised rates, a couple of things have happened. I mean, number one, uh, rents have surged. And when rents surge, that in actually drives up the inflation component for shelter. Um, and because mortgage rates are higher, you know, the, the inflation measure for homeowners, homeowner-occupied homes is also going up. Um, so, you know, it's, it's interesting how higher rates are actually having the opposite effect that the Bank of Canada wants with respect to the shelter component uh, of, of the CPI. Do you look, it's a bigger macro question, but the, the politics of real estate and the politics of interest rates, I get why the opposition leader saying what he's saying. I get why Krista Freeland saying what she's saying yesterday in defending these hikes and, and saying, ah, you know, it's almost like a Bill Clinton, I feel your pain. We didn't have this really, this politicization of real estate and homes to this extent 20, 25 years ago. I don't think it's good for getting governments on the same page when the goal should all be the same. More more houses that are built will will sort of stop choking the market. And I don't know how we get politicians on the same page on this one at all three levels of government. Well, I mean, I think many of them want more houses. I mean, I think they're consistent there. I mean, the challenge in Canada is, that, you know, our, our population growth has, has tripled. You know, we mm-hmm. kind of used to be growing by around 350,000 people per year. Now it's over a million. Uh, but our housing completions have not changed. Uh, and they haven't changed because it's very hard to triple the number of homes you build overnight. It's very easy to drive up your population growth. Uh, so we haven't seen the supply response. And everyone keeps talking about supply, supply, supply. 
uh, but it's not that easy. There are a lot of challenges with tripling the number of homes you build, which is the, the solution most are promising. Do you look and say there will be? It's going to be really difficult for um, for there not to be more people departing the GTA, either because of cost or another reason. I know we're getting. I know there will be an influx of immigration, but but we'll still see numbers year upon year of people. I think I think big cities in America are spotting this as well. The New Yorks and Los Angeleses and Chicago's. They're seeing people get out of those markets more consistently than ever before. Yeah, and we've been seeing that in Canada. Definitely mm-hmm. more uh, more people have been leaving both the greater Toronto area uh, and Ontario generally to more affordable provinces. So moving uh, out west to Alberta, moving east to uh, the Maritimes, New Brunswick, and Nova Scotia. And, and a lot of this, again, is, is certainly housing affordability. Um, and, and people are just, mm-hmm. you know, you used to drive till you qualify. Now people are like flying until they qualify to buy a home. That's a great um, way to put it. That's a yeah, great way to put it. Yeah. John, thanks so much for your insight. I love talking to you about this stuff, and uh, it's important conversations to have. Thanks again. Thanks for having me. Yeah. John Pasalis, our guest. You can find uh, his work, his thoughts, uh, and what he does at realosophy.com. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. We just had a, a listener on a New York City call this last hour, and it's obviously quite bizarre when we look at uh on iqair.com this morning and these are live they updated it at 606 and we didn't see an update for a while and then one just happened at 757 i mean the air in new york uh registers a 185 that's deemed unhealthy now i will tell you for now um i just stepped outside it just does not smell like it did on Tuesday. And yesterday didn't smell like Tuesday. And Toronto was 40th when the show started. And now it's 57th. Remember also, some of this has to do with, is it daylight out? Is it nighttime? Has the work day started? The business day started? All of that stuff. Um, so it all factors in. But we've dropped to 57th at 53. They deem 53 to be moderate. Not unhealthy, but moderate. That's now. That's now. Regardless, that doesn't that does not diminish the unprecedented nature of this. And it's one thing to say, well, we'll get to the weekend and the air will be better. Okay, great. But do we do this again in two weeks? Do we do this again three or four times over the rest of the summer and then next summer as well? These are honest questions and they're fair questions as well. Here's the uh, federal environment minister, Stephen Gilbo. He was doing a chat yesterday and he was kind of pushed on whether or not the federal government can do more. Listen to this answer. What would greatly help our capacity to accelerate our fight against climate change in Canada is if I didn't have to fight with, with certain jurisdiction all the time on, 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 on doing the bare minimum to fight climate change. If I would have to fight the Conservative Party of Canada, we think that we should make, in, in the midst of can, what will likely be Canada's worst year in forest fires, who say we should make pollution free again in, in Canada. Now, I'm not sure about that. I get I get there's got to be some sparring maybe and there is sparring sometimes with provincial governments, namely Ontario, namely Alberta, of course. But you have been the government for eight years. You've had a majority government like twice. And now you've got a supply and confidence agreement with another party to let you do whatever legislation for climate or environment you so choose. Some think it's. It's like Goldilocks and Three Bears. Some think it's enough. Some think it's not enough. Some think it's too much. Of course that that's true. Uh, I want to welcome on uh, climate reporter with the Narwhal. She is Fatima Syed. It's great to have you on. Thanks very much for making the time for us today. Good morning, Greg. Thanks for having me. Of course. I, I, you know, I use the word unprecedented, and I think any way we land, that's the way to describe how Toronto and the GTA has been for three days. We've never had air like this without having extreme heat. We've never had the skies like this for a three or four day span. We haven't. 
Uh, it's definitely unprecedented, but I don't like using that word because uh, it's going to get worse. Uh, you know, scientists and, and climate reporters alike have been uh, looking at the projections and, and, and looking at the numbers. And, and this is kind of the future that we were all seeing. It was going to be increasingly smoky and it was going to spread more widely. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're talking about it being unprecedented for Toronto and the GTA. It's kind of unprecedented for the entire country and the entire continent right now. Um, I don't think Canada has seen so many wildfires happening at the exact same time and spreading with the veracity, intensity and speed that we've been seeing over the last couple of days. No, certainly not. And there's sort of a response to it that is, you know, I think I'm worried the response to it is rather alarming, given that we're borrowing firefighters from the United States and and um, and also uh, jets to drop uh, water bombs, as it were. We're borrowing firefighters from France as well. We're kind of going to have to kind of tackle our own problems if this does become a little to a greater degree the new normal, won't we? Yeah, the fact is that we haven't invested as much into adapting for this kind of future as we should have. You know, let's look at Ontario, for example, which is the focus of of my reporting. Um, The Doug Ford government has slashed the forest firefighting budget by close to 70 percent. That's deeply significant. You know, I was talking to a firefighter just yesterday who was telling me that they don't have enough personnel they don't have enough, you know, teams on the ground. They don't have enough resources to tackle this. Um, and, and they certainly don't have enough, um, you know, support. Um, we're not thinking about this in the long term. We're, we're responding to this crisis, but we're not thinking about this long term. And and the, the thing about wildfires and really any, you know, event related to climate change is that it affects everything. And, and we have to start thinking about it now, because as we've seen over the last several days, it impacts your health. You know, hospitals will be slammed with people, you know, struggling with breathing um, or coughing or headaches and, and so forth. Uh, it's going to impact our infrastructure, you know, um, yeah. how how trains run. If it's too hot or too smoky, trains won't run. Um, it, it's going to impact just our daily way of life. And we're not investing in it. So I heard the clip that you played from from the Federal Environment Minister Stephen Dubot, and and the fact is that unfortunately what we've been seeing over the last several days is a lot of political back and forth. Yes. Um, Some might even call it bickering, Um, but that's not helpful when what we need to be talking about are are long-term and short-term solutions to a growing problem. When you see um, messaging from politicians, and and it, it kind of this is where I think we lose people, and we need to we need to gain people, not lose people in adapting their lives. But but I think we lose people if a politician says, "Just go out and buy an electric car. What's your problem? Um, just do this and do that. Never take uh, never take a car. Never fly on a plane." If there's a way to meet people in the middle, that I think I think it it, it it's the better way to. Do it, and then we can make them adapt. We've done this with so many other environmental things. We've done this with so many other causes, like littering, like going even to from leaded to unleaded gasoline. There was resistance to that in 1970, or lead paint. Um, is there a way to do that without people feeling overwhelmed to make a quick, a, a complete 180 in their choices? I think step one has to be an understanding. Mm-hmm. 
what's causing all of this. You know, I've been, uh, you know, my my Twitter, for example, right now is full of people saying that the wildfires are caused by arsonists. Um, that has to be debunked. We need, uh, you know, that because that's not true. Wildfires are caused by a whole host of complex issues that can't be boiled to one single thing. Um, that includes the climate crisis, which is creating hotter, drier conditions for these wildfires to start and spread rapidly. It's caused by land use policies. So how many trees are we cutting down to build stuff? Are we replacing them with the right kind of nature that we need to absorb, uh, you know, the the impacts of climate change so that we don't get the conditions that lead to wildfires um, and, and, and so forth. The fact is that, you know, I've seen a lot of people, for example, saying that, oh, Americans should be blaming Canada for wildfires. No, it's not as simple as that. You know, uh, there was a recent study that suggested that you know, that that found that 37 percent of the total burned forest area in Western Canada and the United States in the last several decades can actually be traced to the emissions produced by 88 major fossil fuel producers and cement manufacturers. So we need to be talking about the causes and helping people understand what leads to this first. And that's a responsibility that lies with everyone, especially governments and also platforms like, you know, Twitter and Facebook, where a lot of these this sort of, you know, thinking exists, we need to figure out how to debunk it effectively, because once people understand it, then they can mm. help, you know, urge and demand for solutions. Uh, Fatima Syed joining us, uh, climate reporter for the Narwhal. I saw a professor last night say this on, um, actually it was on MSNBC, and I wrote the three things down, and he said, wildfires are caused by three things fuel in the form of vegetation there is some ignition point that could be lightning that could be some form of of human cause or human error that's why we have fires banned right now um in many many areas in ontario and the hot dry windy weather which i think is that's the point you've emphasized but we need all three we do have we do have a um like kind of the that perfect storm of conditions for extreme fire events and then to your point we're just going to have more of these without without alterations in corporate responsibility government responsibility and the like yeah i think i think it's easier for people when there's a human villain involved but so often with these natural catastrophes mm. that we've been seeing it's it's almost never the case it's a wider societal and extremely complex problem and that's why we kind of need to slow down when we're reacting about it and really you know take the time to understand what's causing things, you know, and, and how we can help. It, it, it's, it's very yeah. easy. You know, uh, we're seeing this in Toronto right now in a way that we've never seen where people are pulling out their N95s again and, and wearing them outside. Um, kids are seeing this reality uh, more and more. We, we bear a responsibility to, to take that time to educate ourselves properly. And, and, mm. and that's what we're trying to do at the Narwhal. And that's what we need to be doing more of as a society let's talk more because i think it's not the last conversation we need to have about this um later in the in the summer i appreciate you coming on this morning thank you for having me greg i appreciate it of course uh fatima syed from the narwhal this is toronto today with greg brady toronto's news today's talk 640 toronto Quarter to seven. Good morning. 
Great to have you with us. It really is on this Thursday, on the 8th of June, no less. 19 is the high a little later on. Obviously, air quality, the big issue. And we'll keep you posted on things as the morning continues. No question about it. Uh, new song uh, from Barlow. And, of course, uh, Barlow was nominated for Pop Album of the Year, New Artist of the Year back in 2004 at the Juno Awards. Um, and this song's a little different, a little different in terms of uh, the concept. And uh, joining us right now to discuss The Wizard, which is a song about the North American opioid crisis, and specifically Richard Sackler of Purdue Pharma, is Tom Barlow. It's great to have you on. I always compliment and praise any sort of pop or rock musician, Tom, that gets up early. Because I know that's just not... Maybe when you become parents, that's a thing. But but I, I'm shocked sometimes that we can get anybody on the phone before 11.48 a.m. So I thank you for getting up before 7 a.m. for me. Well, thanks a lot for having me on. And yes, this is early, but uh, very happy to be with you this morning. Tell me about the origin of the song, and, and did it simply stem from um, the, the, the television series Dope Sick? Well, the song is actually quite a bit older. It's, uh, it, it started sort of taking shape five years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, my bass player, Tom Lewis, sent me this funky little 60s riff. And at the time, I was sort of wondering, I had some people very close to me who uh, uh, died as a result of opiates. And it just occurred to me that, where did this come from? Why is this happening now? I I don't remember as a kid hearing about this phenomenon of people dying from opiates. And as I looked it up, as you mentioned in your intro, I found out that people weren't dying because people weren't taking opiates. And... It, it was really for people who were at the end of life in severe pain, uh, you know, dying of cancer, you would get these, these uh, drugs. And it became mass marketed as a, to quote them, start with, stay with drug. And as you know, uh, pharmacists were handing them out like candy around North America. Mm-hmm. And it was becoming this, um, you know, when you, you get a drug that works really well to kill pain and you're told by your doctor, it's not that addictive. Uh, and it happens to be one of the most addictive things on earth, that's a problem. And this this person, Richard Sackler from Purdue Pharma, knew that people were dying, uh, knew that this was becoming a crisis, and his response was, get more of these drugs out there and blame the victims. And to quote him again, he said, we must hammer on the abusers in every way. They are reckless criminals. So... Reading that, I was absolutely outraged that this guy was making billions of dollars, knowingly pushing out this deadly product and telling people and telling the government it's not addictive. So that sort of level of outrage led me to say, you know, I'm a musician. I got to do something. I'll put it in a song. Tom Barlow is our guest on Toronto Today. I think you lay out exactly how um, th- this came to be and sort of how we, we may have felt about um, you know, just just sort of suspicion and distrust towards some of the big pharmaceutical companies. And and you'd have to almost like you said, you'd have to almost have that first person lens. It would have to be they'd ask you to take something after a surgery or ask your mom or dad to take something. And, and we're very conscious, certainly, um, of whether of whether people younger than us are taking these drugs because of their addictive nature. This is not this is just not the same drug use, um, to be honest, of of our generation, is it? It's a lot more dangerous. It is a lot more dangerous. And, you know, in the time since I wrote this song and the crisis happened, it really has evolved. Um, people people had their opiates uh, taken away when the crisis happened or they became more difficult to get. 
suddenly people are out now getting heroin because they have this addiction. Um, they have this dependence. And of course, now we're in the super deadly fentanyl era. But, um, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that it all began as a, as part of a, a plan that was very profitable. And what bothers me to this day is that with all the court cases that have come up against the family and against Purdue, um, the Sackler family keeps most of their money. They are still billionaires. Yeah. They have mansions around the world. They, you know, up until a few years ago had their names on universities and museums and were presented as these great philanthropists. And, you know, you can see all the emails and thank God that there's all these uh, programs now coming out, but you can see they knew, they knew they profited, they kept profiting. And to this day, they keep those profits. So, mm. so I think it's outrageous. And, you know, it's my goal to make the name Sackler the same as Pablo Escobar, because that's what I think he is just a drug dealer who did not care what he was doing, did not care what the consequences were, the human costs. Yeah. And uh, as I said, he's, you know, sitting on his mountain of money. Tom Barlow is our guest, uh, Juno nominated ours. By the way, a show next Monday at the Drake Underground on June 12th, uh, and the new song and video is called The Wizard. Um, and you're you're donating royalties from these streams and downloads directly to a charity. Can you tell our audience about the charity, how you came across them or they came across you, and, and why it matters so much? Sure. Well, th- there are people who are doing really great work in the space. Um, uh, Catherine Harrison works with me, Steve Cousins. These are people who are uh, community activists. And through them, I was connected to a really great organization called Mom Stop the Harm. And these are a group of women who have lost their children, uh, adult children, um, but lost their children um, in, in, this ter- in this terrible crisis. And they provide support for other people. And uh, they, they asked me to perform The Wizard at an event a few years ago. And since then, I've just become, uh, I've become more aware of the scope of the tragedy. And when someone, you know, dies of opioid poisoning, it's not just that person who is gone. It is their family. It is their children. It is their social circle. This is a weight on the entire society. And Mom Stop the Harm are there to sort of, uh, you know, provide comfort and community for people who have been uh, devastated in this crisis. I, I had a friend lose uh, his son um, in uh, in Michigan to uh, opioid addiction, um, and, and he went down to Florida for treatment, but was still, um, there, there was sort of like a, lo- a lot of bait and switch. It was just so awful. Uh, and I'll give you like a lens closer to me. My son played, played soccer at a knee surgery, and I'm sure the doctor, because he thought this is the right thing to do, I'm not uh, assailing the doctor, offered up Percocet as a way to recover. And my son was never in that much pain, so he didn't take one pill. But I'll even tell you that, Tom, I'm, I'm sure it'll work in some circumstances, but in other circumstances, it's too much and it could become addictive. Like these are the these are every parent who hears what I say here can kind of relate to this. We want to we never had to worry about that. Our parents never had to worry about us going out, taking something and being, you know, dead the next morning because it was laced with fentanyl, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, what you're laying out there, I think, is 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 so important because there is a stigma um, that very sadly a lot of people still hold where, well, you know, why should I care about these people? They brought this on themselves. And, and you think about your son given powerful narcotics and 
it is a very slippery slope. Yeah. A very quick path from, you know, I need this because, you know, I blew out my, you know, the meniscus in my knee to, okay, I need this because I need it. And now I'm in trouble. Yeah. Oh, to to that point, all, all of that, and I yeah, there's there's a, there's a couple different conversations for sure. Like I, that's not quite the same as as witnessing people struggling on the street. I think we have we have sort of lost. We've got to find a way to sort of round out compassion. But what your like your your story about Purdue Pharma and anybody who saw Dope Sick or anybody who's read the books about this is just somehow this was not just mainstreamed, Tom. This was. This was pushed. This was a commercial on CNN every five minutes. This was, this is a miracle. You'll feel so much better than your parents or grandparents could have ever felt off the same kind of surgery or the same kind of rehabilitation. Yeah, I mean, one of the ad campaigns that Purdue ran was a, a picture of, a, of a, a person's leg in a construction boot. And, you know, get the, the quote was, you know, if, if you're injured at work, you can get back to work more quickly. Mm-hmm. And, and sure you can, because you're given this powerful drug. And, and though they knew, they knew for a fact, by the time you have hundreds of thousands of prescriptions going out and millions of pills, far more pills that could be legally used, you know that these pills are not going through, pharma, through legitimate pharmacies anymore. There's a mountain of opiates that were going out. Mm. And, you know, the company just kept making them. So... You know, you were talking earlier about not, not going for ideological answers. You know, what does the yeah. left say? What does the right say? Regardless of where you are here, I think we can agree that this man, this family, are responsible for serious crimes. And the justice system does not hold them accountable. And somewhere there's a, pharma- there's a, there's a pharmaceutical company saying, yeah. you know what? We may kill a few hundred thousand well- but at the end of the day, we're going to be able to keep most of our money and we'll be fine. I, I think that's I, the lesson that they're saying when they don't have this guy in prison or they don't take away all of the assets he got from marketing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you bring up those circumstances where I, I can see somebody struggling. I saw three people yesterday near the hospital where I live. I live out in Ajax and they were clearly passed out, struggling, high. I'm, I never saw those people before, but Tom, I don't know their origin stories. These could have been people that did have something simple like a knee or shoulder injury, and and then they got so addicted to the drug, they got off track. They dropped out of school, or they stole from their parents, or they committed crimes to pay. I don't know their story. I know that we can't just leave them there. I know that they need treatment, and those are all the things we wrestle with right now, and those are the things that do get political as to what we should do about it. I just, I, I feel awful, and I know we got to do more as a, as a group, but we can't seem to agree on what the more is. Well, I bet you we can agree that my understanding of the Sackler family now is worth about $15 billion. Um, I think $15 billion goes a mm. long way and does a lot of treatment programs. I think $15 billion provides a lot of education. I think $15 billion can undo a lot of harm. So once again, whether you're left yeah. or right or in the middle of the spectrum, I, I think that justice is not an ideological thing. And if we can somehow get past that and really get to the core of it, we would get this money and we yeah. would put it in the hands of people who can make a difference. Because as you mentioned, this is now in every street, in every big city, in every small yeah. town. 
in my own town of Port Credit, um, yeah. we, we, young people I, are being devastated. Um, people can fi- find uh, The Wizard on well, Spotify, any other stream, and you're making donations, and you're at the Drake Underground on uh, next Monday. I hope you can come in studio and have a longer conversation, and I can't thank you enough for your advocacy on this issue, Tom. Thank you so much for taking uh, taking the time and having me on. Hundred percent. Have a great gig Monday night. Let's talk in the summer. Tom Barlow joining us. The song is "The Wizard." Have a look for it there. It's an important conversation. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. Six forty. Toronto. We always visit weekly with our next guest. He's city columnist. For the Toronto Star, he is knee-deep in a mayoral by-election coverage, that's for sure, and will be over the next two and a half weeks. He is Edward Keenan. It's great to have you on this week. How are you doing? I'm doing really good, Greg. How you doing? Oh, couldn't be couldn't be better. I'm I'm wondering where this all goes. I, it's a weird time because I'm starting. I think candidates are busy door knocking. Weather's better. Um, there's more debates. They're not banging down our door quite as much as they were in the first few weeks of the campaign to get platform. A lot of the platforms are kind of already out there. Do you see it that way also? Yeah, I mean, I I would be a bit surprised if we see any giant new platform planks in the next couple of weeks. We could, you know, somebody could think of something that they think is going to change the race. But I, I think this is a part, as you say, they're, they're less likely to be knocking down your door because they're out there yeah. trying to meet people in the street and find them where they live. This is all about like trying to get out your vote. You wrote about Olivia Chow, and I got a text from a candidate, not one of the major candidates, but somebody that I respect a lot. And she so she attended the Operation Black Vote um, Canada debate. And this was like a late night text. And and I she this person was just like apoplectic at all the things Olivia Chow didn't say instead of instead of was saying. And the same day you wrote about uh, the headline on your column, why the repeated attacks on Olivia Chow just make the other mayoral candidates look silly. But I sense that sort of bubbling frustration that. She's not saying as much. She still holds the lead. What do other candidates do to to countenance that? Yeah, I mean, and this is one of those things where, like, I'm I'm out over my skis a bit in trying to offer advice as a political strategist, right? Like, <laughs> I've watched this for a long time. But at first, like everybody else, I kept thinking, uh, like, why doesn't she just have an answer for this question about property taxes that they keep asking her again and again and again, like in sequence, they'll ask her and they say the same things. And if she wanted to, obviously she could have a quick pithy answer that just takes, takes the air right out of their tires on that. Right. And, and so I have to conclude after a while that it's like a briar rabbit, uh, like don't throw me in the briar patch. Like she's rope doping them a little bit because she doesn't think she's vulnerable on it. And so now like your caller, like your texter, mm-hmm. I think there are people who wish she would answer firmly and, and think that that's kind of symbolic of a lot of ways. She's not providing as much detail as, as I would frankly like uh, to be able to analyze her platform. But at the same time, the size of the lead she's had so far and the kind of unshakability of that lead makes me think that actually the, the voters who already like her, who are sticking with her, yeah. uh, kind of trust her and and like her legacy. They feel like they know who she is, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, and, 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 and is this, is this your... Get nitpicked if she provides more detail. Well, that's it. If, if you were running for office or I were running for office and a strategist said to us, we got two and a half weeks to go. You're in great shape. Don't screw it up. I guess we would take that. (laughs) Like, honestly, is there any other way to describe it? I think she knows what she wants to do, but she didn't have to say it. 
Yeah, and I think it, the more the more specific details you put out, the more you impress people like me who want to analyze the details. But it also opens you up to nitpicking over little things that you think are details and suddenly become in the public's mind like, oh, her numbers don't add up. Whereas if she mm-hmm. just says, you know what, we're going to figure it out and I have the experience to do it. Well, we can judge her on that. And mm-hmm. some of us will judge her more harshly, but others are going to say, "Yeah, I like this lady. Ed Keenan's our guest, Toronto Star. I heard a theory from somebody that I respect a ton who documented for me, had Josh Madlow run in the fall, had he been the one, you know, bigger name to step up against John Tory, he doesn't win, he comes close to winning, and he's in much, much better shape in this particular election than otherwise. Would you buy that, or would you would you say, I'm not sure he'd be any different than where he is right now? No, I, I think there's a lot to that, and obviously... Um like any kind of revisionist history like this, it's it's possible things could have gone any number of ways. But I think if Josh Matlow runs a strong second last time and is the, the kind of like obvious front runner going in this time, there's a chance Olivia Chow doesn't run. There's a chance some of these other people mm. don't run. And then there's a chance that this campaign becomes about who can stop Josh Matlow. And, and that's a whole different campaign because I, I think actually in a lot of ways, He's run one of the most substantive campaigns. I think whether you dis- whether you agree with him or not, he's being pretty forthright about what he wants to do. He's being pretty yeah. detailed about those those things we were just talking about, um, and trying to show his math, show his thinking, uh, and and I think in a lot of ways, like he does appeal to people. And at the start of this campaign, he even looked fairly strong against Olivia Chow. He wasn't beating her, but he was like, you know, he was beating Saunders early on. Um, but I, but I think there's like not enough runway and he didn't have enough name recognition at the beginning. He wasn't the default. So I, I think there's a good chance if he ran as the like strong alternative to John Tory last time and placed a strong second, much stronger than Gil Penalosa did. Then I think as soon as John Tory resigned, everybody would say, well, I guess it's going to be Matt Lowe and the race would be about Matt Lowe or someone else. And that's not how things have happened. No, it's not. Ed Keenan's our guest joining us in Toronto today with Greg Brady, 640 Toronto. It's not an easy answer, but do you see, I saw people predicting last week, someone will, will start to get dropouts and they'll line behind somebody else. I mean, we're Thursday morning. Maybe it happens, but I don't have, I don't have great answers. Someone said, could you see a scenario? I'm like, I don't think Brad Bradford's going to drop out and go behind Mark Saunders. I don't think Mitzi Hunter will drop and support um, Josh Matlow. I think Mitzi may take another run at this in 2026 and, and maybe do better than she's doing right now. I just don't, I don't know what that alignment is. Like you you and I are saying for somebody that wants to stop Olivia Chow for lack of a better term. I don't know the, the combination and the equation that makes it work. Yeah. I mean, as you're saying, like the, just the personalities involved, <laughs> um, <laughs> like, like it's, it's hard to see if, if Brad Bradford was at all thinking about dropping out, uh, a week or two ago might have been the time. And while having a new baby at home might provide even more of an excuse, you know, I've had time to reflect on what I, my family needs from me or whatever. Um, it, it's it's kind of like Bylaw's the only one I could see him throwing his support behind, not because of the kind of campaign he's run, but because they were naturalized on city council. Brad, Brad to Anna, you see. You see yeah, and yeah, I, yeah, I don't necessarily see that that puts her over the top of anything, right? <laughs> Um, like, like when you're thinking about dropping out and giving up on this thing you've been doing and supporting somebody else, you say, okay, first of all, is there somebody I want to support? And second of all, 
is it really going to help, right? Is it going to be remembered as the thing that changed the race? Because that would at least make this all worth something. And and it, it's hard to see a matchup where where the ideologies align and it makes yeah. any difference. Million-dollar question to wrap on. Anthony Fury's got a fundraiser with Jordan Peterson on Sunday. Um, tickets are expensive. They're in the four figures just to get in the door. I see Peterson. I see Peterson a lot of different ways. It's complicated. Um, but I also see Peterson as I think that's better to get votes than I think it will help him more than hurt him. The fact he's endorsing him, the fact that somebody so famous, infamous, is so engaged in the race. How do you view that? Yeah, I mean, some somebody so infamous and also somebody who has a legion of really loyal fans, right? So you think for somebody like Anthony Fury, that's, that's volunteers of some kind, right? Like whether that means that they're going to be uh, on social media pumping his tires or actually literally out knocking doors for him. Jordan Peterson's fans are, are active people. And I think for Anthony Fury, there's a, there's a, a kinship with, with Jordan Peterson in their politics to some large extent. So it makes sense. It's not obviously going to impress people like me or my friends or like, you know, Olivia Chow voters. I think for, for Anthony Fury, more than any of the other candidates, the kind of negative attention he gets for that is, is, built into his reputation already, right? As a, a sort of right-wing con. I, I, I think you're right. I, th- I think you're right. Yeah. If everybody, if every executive from the TDSB came out today and, and endorsed Olivia Chow, if I'm Chow's campaign manager, I'm like, <laughs> you just, yeah, exactly. You had the same reaction I had. Some of this is okay. Some of this is going to have a negative ripple effect. Like everything, everything is like waves. Waves come into yeah. the shore, they go out to the ocean. Come into the shore, go out to the ocean. There's no universal endorsement that's going to please everybody. There just isn't. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, uh, but, I, but I do think Anthony Fury is on the move. And, mm. I, and I think if there's a chance that in the last two and a half weeks something shakes up in this race, it's going to be because of his movement on the right side of the field. I, I would guarantee, quick, quick yes or no, I guarantee he's finishing in the top three. I, I'm sure that he is. Uh, top five for sure. Yeah. Top three is, is likely, I think. Ed, I got a blast. Thanks so much for this, man. Thank you, Greg. It's always fun. Okay, next week uh, we'll revisit it. Ed Keenan joining us on Toronto Today.